right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a way back, you fool. There must be a way back. Hello all, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Projects podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we had something very interesting to see this time. Also, though, not much to see. <laughs> because it's once again spooky month! We are are continuing our Halloween 2023 theme of delving into some of the... The grander universal monster universe? Yes. 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 And uh, last time we talked about the mummy, and now that that's been unearthed, we are now talking about the 1933 feature, The Invisible Man. So we watched the movie... That most people think about being about a guy wrapped in bandages, and instead he spends most of the time sharply dressed. And now it's the character who most modern depictions show sharply dressed who actually spends most of his movie, or at least half of his movie, wrapped in bandages. Yes, exactly right. Got it right. Good. (laughs) Maybe that was a focus group thing. Yeah. They released Boris Karloff as the mummy in 1932, and the, the main feedback was... Not enough bandages. <laughs> hey, you know you, you've got it. You've got to get that. You know the Johnson and Johnson sponsorship somewhere. They're gonna want to put something in. So hey, yes, the Intermillennium Media Project is sponsored by Ace Bandages. Exactly. Now that would be cool, but it's not. Oh, yeah. If you do want to sponsor us, let us know. Please do. But uh, this is one of those ones where I don't know what your background is, having seen it. I don't know of this version of the character as much. In some ways, the Invisible Man is just a generic concept. There's not even a referenceable movie as much to the cultural landscape I know it. It exists, but it's not like I think to see the movie about him. And the few times he's shown up, he's either part of an ensemble, or at least one instance I can think of where he is a creepy bad guy who's the existence as the title character kind of gives away the plot of the creepiness. So he's hard to work with. It's hard to have a main character you can't see. And that's, that's very true. And this movie deals with that by making him a character you can see for a whole lot of the movie. For a whole lot of the movie. But that's a fascinating thing. They, they fix that in this also by making him a character who is, you know, he is 1% opacity, 99% ego. And that is so effective to this guy. <laughs> it's Claude Rains, starring as the Invisible Man, also known as Dr. Jack Griffin. And yeah, he brings a certain mania to that role. He does. And this is very much sold as an adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel. I have to admit, this is an H.G. Wells novel I have not read. Okay. So unlike, say, The Time Machine, I don't know to what extent this is a, a halfway decent adaptation of the novel, or they just took the concept and went crazy. Yeah. But it's, 
The major thing that struck me immediately, I'm going to say, is this is a much more rural movie than I expected. This is, weirdly enough, there were elements to this movie that reminded me of The Thing in ways I didn't expect, because it takes place sometimes during these deep winter storms that limit travel at times. And it's in a slightly isolated environment with a decent-sized community, but part of what feels like the push is keeping this guy from getting any further with his crazy ideas or anywhere into the city, like kind of preventing him from hitting the bigger bastion of civilization he might head to once he finishes concocting his plans is part of the point of this film. And that had very much the same sort of, we have to keep it isolated here and deal with the problem before it escapes kind of attitude. Yes, he is going, uh, the, the character was seeking a place where he could be remote and left alone and conduct his research. And we'll talk about what that research is. But yeah, it, it's a, a town in Sussex in England, so it's not that remote. But you add a snowstorm, like in the very first shot of the movie, where this mysterious person covered head to toe is trudging through the snow and trying to find the, the signs to this town. It certainly seems extremely remote. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of imagery that is used later in movies like An American Werewolf in London. But in here, it is very much setting you up for something that at first appears very remote and very isolated and turns out not to be very isolated. And that's bad for everyone. Exactly. But yeah, it starts out with him kind of wandering in and being a not the not a good customer demanding a room and such at this small inn out of season. Yeah, comes to this pub where it's all the locals are hanging out and they're not too sure about this stranger coming in in such terrible weather. But he's got money. He dresses fairly nicely, or at least his clothes look expensive enough that, yeah, they'll give him food and, and a drink and a room. And, he's, and ver he's very insistent about getting his luggage delivered to the place so he can start his work. Yes. And he very much wants to be left alone. Yep. And he's already making the, the landlady very nervous. Did you recognize her, by the way? No. The woman playing Jenny Hall, the, uh, the innkeeper's wife? That's Una O'Connor. Okay. And I know you've seen her before because she's in The Bride of Frankenstein, which we talked about for a Patreon episode last yeah. year. Yeah. She is the, the first person that is terrorized by the Frankenstein monster when he wakes up in the ashes of the, the oh, mill. Oh, goodness. Oh, hey. <laughs> so she is a character actor who's all often playing these opinionated but easily terrified villagers. The time frame of when those line up is a little rough, but the idea that they're possibly of the same family line. <laughs> just like, yeah, you're, you know, my, you know my, my grandparents had a rough enough time out here dealing with, you know, some person back in this time making this monster. They moved out here, and now I'm dealing with this <laughs> jerk. It's like, Things were too dangerous over in Germany, so we moved here to England. Exactly. Every single time my family deals with a scientist, it just goes badly. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me want to, to map out the Una O'Connor universe, kind of uh, like the, the Tommy Westfall verse. Oh, yeah, you'll find a Westfall <laughs> somewhere in there. But... 
yeah, there's a lot of slow buildup. This is a, definitely a movie that kind of accelerates over time, I'd say, because the amount of time we spend getting established of him sitting down at his place and getting, getting warmed up and asking for his bags and setting up his beakers, it all builds over time. Yeah, it's very much a thriller in structure in that way, in that there's no real mystery. Things are revealed in terms of what's really happening fairly early on, and it's just a question of what is this character willing to do, and to what lengths is this character willing to go, and to what extent this, does this character still have any moral judgment? Exactly. Because what has happened, as we learn soon in the movie, to uh, to Dr. Griffin is he was experimenting with drugs and I, what his goal was to make to, was to create invisibility wasn't it to so that there yeah. could be an invisible armies protecting the empire and things like that yeah there he he he's using a combination of drugs and dyes that are known to cause this effect to kind yes. of like here's like this this clothes dye that is very rare that does this special effect He's gathered a lot of this very rare and hard to obtain material, which also means that after his first batch, in a Jekyll and Hyde sort of way, it's hard to make more. But he got just the right formula one time to use these drugs to pull it into the system and seep it through his entire body. So he pretty much dyed his entire self invisible. And now he's completely transparent and it, he can't turn visible again he can't undo the effects and so he's trying to build something that is reversible by reversing it on himself and then making a version that he can sell to the military for the the defense of king and country with you know invisible troops who can be turned visible when they come back home is the idea this is one of those plots that probably would not be possible if you had things like Google Translate and online journal repositories. Yeah. Because, yeah, he was using this, this material that, uh, this, this, I believe it was a botanical substance that it was known for its bleaching qualities. It would bleach things pure white. But someone also experimented giving this to dogs, and it turned their fur an almost translucent white. And Dr. Cranley, Griffin's mentor provides the exposition that it also turned the dogs insane. It made them yeah. incredibly aggressive and, and and violent. And he knows this because he happened to find this in a German medical journal that wrote up this. The English journals o- only mentioned its bleaching qualities. So, yeah. <laughs> If only this guy had read German or thought to look in the German journals, then he might not have done this to himself. Because that's a lot of the point of this is this man is now invisible, but he is slowly going insane. But there's a bit of a question as to how much of the increasingly violent and crazy things he's trying and doing and suggesting are actually the the drugs doing things to him. And how much was just a guy who, when given this creepy kind of freedom, let his worst impulses take charge? And how much of this was him in there? 
to some extent. And there's also the trauma of what he has lost or might be losing because he was in love with the daughter of his mentor and she was in love with him and they had a beautiful future together all planned. But now, I mean, he's invisible and he can't just go and marry her, apparently. So that's one of the reasons why he has to, he has to find a way back as he keeps chanting to himself. Yes. It's so that he can have the life he imagined and so that he can continue his research. And his research is only half finished, only half valuable if he doesn't have an antidote available. So it's this combination of what he wants to achieve with the invisibility, the power that his own invisibility gives him, and the life he wanted slipping out of his grasp. It's this weird feedback loop that seems to make him more and more violently insane. Exactly. But it starts out with him just having wild mood swings at the inn that he's in, especially when he's interrupted and there's information, like someone sees him taking off his his mask, his bandages, and there's nothing there. And so suddenly the town is, you know, in in uproar and coming after, like, what's going on here? And this, I will say, is the silliest part. Is him fighting off people in the inn. Yes, and that's some of the... They have to use their gimmicks. If you're going to have a movie about the Invisible Man, you've got to have things moving around uh, without any explanation. And it finally comes to a head here in the inn when he hasn't been paying his bills, because apparently his funds are limited to some extent. And... The landlord comes upstairs to kick him out, and instead he kicks the landlord down the stairs, and the police get involved. But yeah, there's this... This is one of the things that I remember most from seeing this when I was a kid, is him taking off his clothes so that he is invisible, and then just fighting and pranking everybody who's in the room, and then going and running through the town and causing all kinds of havoc. Yeah, uh... We've seen some of the creative invisibility stunts before on the podcast with the uh, Medford trilogy. <laughs> yes, the, what is it, now you see him, now you don't. Exactly. But in that one, if I remember correctly, they had like a spray that turned you invisible. And, and it would wash off with water. And it would wash off with water. This is just, he is invisible. Nothing he owns, nothing else. And so there's this very silly moment where it is pretty obvious that in order to run around completely invisible, this man has just thrown his pants at people. <laughs> and I will just point out, yeah, so the villain in this movie is an invisible naked man terrorizing a town and stealing bicycles to begin with. And the movie kind of plays on that, too. There is something scandalous or titillating about the fact that the villain is a naked man. You've got this feature film being showed to audiences of all ages and genders featuring a naked man running around causing havoc but it's okay because we can't actually see him absolutely and they do talk about the fact that you know well i need a blanket for the car because it's awfully cold this time <laughs> of year when you have to go around naked they keep on making these jokes and it's just like this is the most awkward bad guy ever he he all as he gets more crazy he gets a little bit bond villainy He's got that smarts and that pre-planning and that manipulative mindset. But just the idea of a Bond villain who keeps on talking about how it's too cold in the room is just odd. Yes, and a Bond villain with a very small scope of operations. Exactly. You know, I shall be the most powerful man in all of Sussex. 
No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to... Someone get me a cardigan. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, upon being found out, he kind of has a little flip out where he he runs through the town causing mayhem, stealing bicycles and knocking people over and uh, throwing an old man into a lake, I believe. Or throwing his hat, or at least. He knocks down a bunch of people and messes with people. And that's the start of his reign of terror. But it does get worse from there. Way worse. It does, because it turns into, in addition to his initial drives to find a way back to make his invention valuable and to get back the life with his his uh, fiance. there's also this increasing... Paranoia? Yeah, paranoia. This every slight must be countered. Every question of his ability, his sanity, his power has to be countered with overwhelming force. So when he goes back to, was it London where his uh, his mentor's laboratory was? I didn't think it was actually in. It was it was near London though. It was closer to the city. He eventually goes back there and he winds up intimidating his colleague there. Another mentee of, of, of his of the professor into helping him mm-hmm. and but when they go back to the small town to get his uh, his notes and his equipment and the police are there investigating he just destroys the place and winds up killing one of the police officers yes so he is not only a crazy guy who doesn't pay his hotel bills and causes havoc in a uh, a small town in sussex now he's a murderer at large Exactly. And a lot of the movie is him dealing with the guy who's now his Renfield, his his visible servant, and the manhunt for the invisible man and seeing the police trying to figure out a way to to find and stop him. And the the police are doing everything they can to, like, set up a a hotline to be able to call if you have sightings. Wait. (laughs) <laughs> problem there they're they're trying to figure out ways to trap him like what can we do to make an invisible person capturable and meanwhile we've got this internal tension where we don't know where he is if you're talking about him he could be in the room and everyone slowly becomes aware of that like oh he can Listen in. He can hear our plans to stop him if he comes to the right place. If you are, if you think you leave the room with him, you don't know if you did. He could follow you out into the hall and you wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, there are some great scenes with that where the the special police squad who's figuring out ways to get him, they take all the furniture out of the room, link arms, and walk from one end of the room to the next to sweep it to make sure there are no invisible men there. Yeah. And then they all sit down on the floor and discuss their strategy exactly. and their tactics. It's fascinating. And we also get some of that from Dr. Griffin's point of view as well, mm-hmm. because we have him telling his now assistant some of his limitations. Snow or soft ground, people can follow my tracks. If there's a fog, people will see the disturbances in the fog. I'm not totally immune from detection because I am invisible. I still have to be clever about how I use this power of mine. And of course, he sees himself as the cleverest person in the world, so he doesn't mind telling this guy all of these limitations because this guy's going to do what he says anyway because he's 
constantly threatening him. Yeah. This movie skips over various of the the scientific problems with the concept of invisibility, such as the fact that and a truly invisible person could not see their own environment either. Yes. Since light would pass through the backs of their <laughs> eyes and they would never actually be able to read anything from the light going through them. But giving those standard, oh, this person is invisible aside, this is a remarkably scientific story in the way everyone else applies trial and error, applies methods. When a method fails, they learn from it and try a new thing, keeping that in mind. There's not a lot of trying the same failing tactic again. There's a lot of cleverness on all the sides in terms of how you fight or fight as this kind of entity. And it's interesting to, to go through that montage of calls to that tip line you mentioned. People coming up with ideas about how to f- detect the invisible man and calling the police some of them are just wacky and some of them are gosh that's pretty clever but there's this one flaw that he could get around yeah i mean toss flour on him great but the economy of scale becomes a problem yes tarring a road would be very effective but too too limiting to everybody else right and he'd be able to go around too easily there's there's these little things where like they are taking anything they can into consideration and we watch that process. I do like that. A lot of that whole manhunt, manhunt sequence, it seemed to me to be structured like an asymmetrical board game. Yes. I could see a board, maybe this has been done, I could see a board oh. game where one player is the invisible man and the other player is the police trying you- to figure out ways to detect and capture the invisible man. Hidden movement games. It is a major genre. One player has a small version of the board. They select where they move each turn. Everyone else moves around and gets clues based on how close or where they are. It is a hugely popular genre with a bunch of great entries into it. And this movie is showing you that that concept is in there still. So absolutely. Yeah, you add condition cards to make things difficult or more difficult or more easy for different uh, sides. That could be an interesting game. Uh, some of the best examples are the game Scotland Yard. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, letters from Whitechapel. A lot of things set in London. It's got a good setup for that. Yeah, I'm sure that's a uh, uh, Jack the Ripper theme, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mind MGMT. That's huh. a hugely interesting one based on a comic with a very, very intense effect. Uh, and there's even some simpler ones like Captain Sonar, which is a two team versus version of those sort of games. Or Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space, which is kind of a minimalist hidden role sci fi version. There's a lot of good games of that exact type out there. Yeah, a uh, a version based on a map of 1930 Sussex. Yeah. With the Invisible Man would be fun. It'd be very fun. And that's the kind of action you get through most of the movie. There are the police looking for for Griffin, but there's also the interaction of Griffin with the other characters that he knows. We talked about his uh, his dealing with his colleague and sort of intimidating him into to doing his bidding and driving him around and helping him collect what he needs. But there's also, we do get interaction with his old mentor and his sweetheart and her trying to convince him to come in and let us help you, and we can all figure out something together. I love you. Come home. You couldn't love me if you couldn't see me. I just said 
okay then is kind of the interaction we get it's like dude seriously and there's also a sense of i don't need anyone to help me with the science part because i am super intelligent and more clever than all of you and i can't trust any of you anyway you can't see it because it's invisible but i have a big brain (laughs) and then the the final act of the movie is this complicated again it's very much a thriller kind of setup this complicated thing where they're using his friend as bait to and and bringing him in to the police station and then getting him away safely through back alleys, but using this as a way to lure the invisible man into the police station so they can put him in a cell and lock him up. It's a, it's a really clever idea. Yeah. If you assume that the invisible man has no idea how policemen think, which he does. Which he does. So he escapes, but he's also kind of an egotistical idiot, which means he thinks he'll get away with it. And that means that if he gets tired and it's cold out because of a snowstorm, he'll take a nap. Not before he uh, he murders his friend, who he sees as now betraying him. Yeah, by driving a- him off a, a cliff in a car. Yeah, which just made me remember all the sad Mini Coopers lost in the Italian job. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, but yeah, he um, eventually. It is a very Frankenstein-like ending in that he is ultimately he's. He's in a barn where he has decided to sleep for the night. The farmer notices something's going on and goes to report it to the police because news of the pursuit of the Invisible Man is everywhere. And the police surround this barn. And the police set that on fire? or uh, The police try to smoke him out, but it's not doing well. So they kind of, they, they turn to the farmer and say, we burn this down, we'll pay you back for you. He's like, go ahead, get rid of this guy. And they light the thing. Okay. And that finally forces him, forces the invisible man out. But because of the fresh snow, which they talked about earlier, they're able to watch where he is as they do the same arm link thing they did in the room to sweep forward. And the moment they actually see that he's come out, they open fire where that was and shoot him. And... I actually have to back up a little bit because you're mentioning the snow again reminds me of how clever some things about that earlier plan by the police were. They they sprinkled fresh earth on top of all the walls around the police yard so that if he tried to get in over a wall or out over a wall, he would disturb that and they mm-hmm. would notice the falling earth. A lot of these details that, you know, they thought this through and had good plans. He was just one step ahead of them, which isn't too surprising he is being portrayed as a very clever character but they they show as the entire work of of his former colleague of his former mentor of the police and of the townspeople he might be clever but he is only one step ahead a single step right and that's the difference there is they are hot on his invisible heels by the end of this and the fact that he escapes this is almost the shining spot of he might get away for him. And that's why he has finally this hubristic relaxation of his own bit of paranoia, actually, which is what does him in. Yeah, the, the, the more and more disturbed he got, the more and more he overestimated his own cleverness. And finally, well, he has been shot, as you said, they, they do get him to the hospital, don't they? They do, once he's been shot, get him to the hospital. And this so, is where kind of, one of, honestly, one of the most wild scenes of the whole movie is. 
Because apparently the invisibility wears off when you die. Yeah. Your your body processes through suddenly, your your blood stops flowing, and it fades out through your system at that point. So we finally get to see Claude Rains briefly at the very end of this movie but in a hospital bed. The creepy thing is that it starts from the inside out. Yes. So he comes back in layers in a wildly creepy crossfade <laughs> effect of they've got models of different layers to the man before he becomes visible and the moment he is fully visible is when you know he's dead i couldn't help but think of dr manhattan's origin story in watchmen as a reference to this in that in the way he was reassembling himself in the different systems with the nervous system and circulatory system and everything else that's kind of how we see griffin come back to visibility as he dies absolutely and it is creepy and it's a it's a really good effect especially for 1933 yeah and in general this is a movie that had a lot of practical effects that probably were really awesome for for audiences in 1933 i would say there are some scenes in which the invisibility stuff was overused but i wouldn't say that it's overused in the movie overall because for so much of the movie we see Claude Rains as Griffin. He's just bandaged head to toe, and he's interacting with other characters like any character would. There are those scenes where, yeah, they have to have a lot of things flying around on wires and special gimmicks to make them move around as if an invisible man was throwing them or carrying them or the like. Mm-hmm. There were some scenes that where that was overdone. They could have been shorter, but it didn't, it didn't overdo it for the movie, I thought. Anytime you've got this kind of character, there's a it's a filmmaking kind of chance to get to do some of these things. And I've seen it happen in individual episodes of TV shows as much as I have movies and such. But the seeing this as being some of those early examples is wonderful. And it's not early. There's examples that probably did some of these techniques earlier for ghosts and other stuff. But putting it together with this context does something. Well, I think we're coming close to our final questions. I think so. But before we get to that, I just want to let folks know that if you want more of the Intermillennium Media Project, go to immproject.com, where you'll find all of our back episodes, including all of our previous Halloween episodes, and The Mummy from our last time around. And you can also find a link to our shop, to our Patreon, if you want to support the podcast and also get some more audio content, and a link to our Discord and our contact page. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you think of the Invisible Man, and the whole universe of Universal monster movies. Yep, our show is delightfully visible, so please show it to your friends and share it about. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found online as Item Crafting, most places such as itemcrafting.com, Item Crafting on YouTube, or Item Crafting Live on Twitch. And you can find me at bymatthewporter.com, where you'll find information about whatever it is I'm doing online including my YouTube channel, where you can find the Draft House Diary, where I talk about every single trip I make to an Alamo Draft House, so it's mostly me rambling about somewhat newer movies than I talk about here on the podcast. But we're leading into our final questions, this means. We are. And that means I get to talk and say the names of all the other movies that came out from this as a franchise. Well, are we going to ask first, screen or no screen? Ah, uh, I'm going to say no screen. 
fun, but not perfect. It was a little, a little rough for me. It just didn't click. Yeah, I am. I'm gonna say screen, but it's not a really strong, <laughs> heartfelt screen. Yeah. There are things about this movie that are worth seeing. There are influences that this movie has on later movies that make it worth seeing. It's a fun performance by Claude Rains. It's not that good a movie, especially yeah. you compare it to something with the depth of The Mummy or even Dracula. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're doing your Universal Monster movies uh, Halloween party, this should be put earlier like an opening act at a, at a uh, concert. Right. It's not going to be the headliner movie, but it should be in there. So we've got another split decision, a screen from me and no screen from you. Yep. But it's, um, it's, it's there for universal completists, I would say. Yeah, I'd say so. But Universal didn't stop. All of these, they turned into franchises. Of course, you make one, you might as well make a dozen. So, so uh, even after he dies in the first one, I don't know how this happens. The Invisible Man returns. The Invisible Woman. Oh, cool. Uh, Invisible Agent. Invisible Man's Revenge. And, like most of the Universal Monster movies have as their final entry... Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. <laughs> I do wonder how they continued these things. And once again, it makes me think of the Thin Man. And it's like, you yeah, know, you do uh, realize the actual Invisible Man died, but they kept making movies with that title. I want this now. I want the Thin Man meets the Invisible Man. <laughs> There's been a string of robberies. One of them ended in a murder. And so they pull... They pull oh, him Nick in. Charles they investigating Nick, this. <laughs> Nick and Nora Charles investigating it, and he realizes based on the the chemicals and such in the place. I heard a report about something like this in London. There's an invisible guy running around, and he figures out how to capture him. Oh, I like this. That. Would be excellent. Because <laughs> I think the way you, I think the way you reveal he's listening in is you, you pour yourself a drink, and no one bats an eye, and then you throw the drink across the room, and it splashes on someone. Who isn't there? <gasps> it's kind of it kind of writes itself. I'm excited now. <laughs> now I did see this again. It was in that rotation of Saturday night horror movies on a local TV station. So I did see this when I was a kid. It did not make the impression on me that Dracula or Frankenstein or the Mummy did. But you know, I recognized it as being kind of cool at the time. But what I remember better are a couple of TV shows from the late 70s and the early 80s. They were both called The Invisible Man. One of them starred David McCallum, who is now on NCIS as Ducky. He was invisible, but he had a like super realistic latex mask that he could wear to operate normally and just remove the mask when he wanted to be invisible. And another series that was on at like the same time called The Gemini Man. He had a digital watch. And because of whatever had been done to his body, if he pressed a certain button on the digital watch, he would become invisible. But that also started a timer, because if he stayed invisible too long, he would be invisible forever. So, in those, the Invisible Man was a good guy, a superhero, a secret agent. It wasn't the invisibility gives you power, but also drives you mad the way it was in this. Although, speaking of bad guys with invisibility powers, don't know if you remember in Heroes. Yatta! 
when was it Siler who took invisibility power from somebody? Yes. The guy he took the invisibility power from was called Claude Rains. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> nice oh. oh, that's but a good there one. again. It was the invisibility isn't necessarily the power of a good guy. Yeah. And I can there. There is something inherently bad guy ish about the invisibility power. It seems to me it's not the stand up and defend people kind of superpower that we like to see in our good guys even the incredible hulk he's really strong so he can fight bad guys there's something inherently suspect or sleazy about invisibility as a power it is turning it is turning one's presence as a way to be dishonest yes the only way you knew he was there is when he put on the wraps or he spoke he could be there without your knowing and therefore be dishonest about existing otherwise. And the, the weird idea that if we aren't, weren't all contained to that admittance of existence, there was this underlying darkness to what people would try to do if they didn't have to admit they were there by being there in that sense yeah it it just by its nature invisibility prompts that in most contexts i think very suspect question of well what do you have something to hide well if you're talking about personal invisibility and using it for gain then that's not necessarily that, that can be a fair question and it says something the only heroes you've talked about who have had the power here are people who could not do that forever and people for whom part of the job was keeping a secret, was keeping information controlled. They were agents. They were a people for whom there was kind of a, a good reason to sometimes be dishonest. Yeah, I mean, a Cold and War secret agent, that's, that's already a, I, in the shadows. You're just making your own shadows. Exactly. But a normal everyday person can can have that way to lie and the darkness of the person comes out is kind of what they showed. So the, the idea of an invisible man was very much a, just a standard pop culture trope by then. Yeah. The idea of the invisible man being inherently scary and dangerous, partly because what has been done to him is driving him crazy. That's something I, you didn't see as much of, although it does come back in, in later movies like The Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. Yes. Things like Hollow Man, uh, things like, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, Japanese, The Invisible Man appears, 94, it was like one of the major like tent poles. It's like, there's a lot of interesting stuff here in terms of like, it didn't hold on its own, but it kept going through as a concept other people would pick up and use. It seems to be one of these things where so many people look at it and say, this is, this is such a cool idea. There's got to be something here. We've got to be able to build a really dramatic, compelling story. And nobody can quite do that. Yeah. And there's been the 2000 attempted remake in stuff. There's, been, there's a bunch of different versions of it. It's kind of too many to list spinoffs the fact that it has a book origin also causes it to branch off in a lot of different ways but the concept yeah it i haven't seen it played the way this one did i've and seen it used other places but not the way this one used it 
And I think what was key about the way this movie used it in 1933 was the gimmicky scenes notwithstanding, the fact that what had happened to this scientist happened to be invisibility was almost secondary to the structure and the the path on which we see these characters. Yeah. It could have been any kind of experiment that did something weird to him. It happened to be invisibility, and that, of course, drives a lot of the set pieces, drives the structure of what the manhunt is like. But it's not that far off of something like The Incredible Hulk, where it's a scientist whose experiments went wrong, it turned him into something potentially monstrous, and he has to balance his survival and what he wants and his attempt to undo this with society's fear of him and need to constrain him. Absolutely. And I'm like, there's something about the way they portray him in this that reminded me of the, the grand scientist figure we've seen in so many of these other films we've watched where the man of science will fight through and deal with the repercussions and do the, do the thing and kind of that, that golden age grandeur of it all that we've seen in some of these other stories. But in this one, the depiction of this, of our, of our main creature here as he becomes starts out as one of those and corrupts over the course of the film even more. And I'm fascinated with this because it's almost like seeing that luster of this version of a character we've seen before fall away Hmm. in this, like, he almost seems like he could have been that triumphant hero early, and he ends absolutely not. He saw himself as an heroic figure of science like the Time Traveler, or like Dexter Riley from Medfield College. Exactly. And uh, I think he still kind of saw himself that way, even as it became increasingly evident to everybody else in the whole world that, no, he is a danger and a menace and a murderer. Mm-hmm. So I think my response is that I want to see a reboot of this version i want to see this kind of the toll it takes on a man version be played with but i also know we're going to see plenty of in we're going to see air quotes plenty of invisible people pop up in media plenty of other places there is an invisible character who is very popular in the class of my hero academia it is a generic superpower at this point that shows up other places it's gonna appear other places as well And so I'm kind of ready for all the interpretations we've had, but I want to see another version of this one. We don't often play this game, but if you were making a new version of this 1933 Invisible Man, who would you cast as Dr. Griffin? Oh, who would I cast as Dr. Griffin? That's a little tricky. I think one of the biggest tricks would be don't tell anybody. Don't, oh, don't yes. reveal your casting <laughs> until it, the the premiere date. That's key. That's hard to do, but hard that would to be do, key. but it would be excellent. You'd have to like gather together all of the actors who possibly could play this role and kind of sequester them while the one who is actually cast does the shoot. I have to admit, based on some of the manic scenes that we see uh, Claude Rains in, uh, Nicolas Cage. Ah, uh, yeah. Or, if you want to be a little more subdued and intense about it, Tom Hiddleston. Possibly. Honestly, I'm thinking, partially because my, uh, my lovely partner has uh, shown me the movie recently, I'm thinking of Noah Centennial, who I saw in To All the Boys I've Loved, 
but he could play that kind of scientist guy with a little bit of mannequin there. I think just seeing him have this emotional con uh, communication with people in this awkward situation thing. I think he's got the acting range. He could do a good job with it. Interesting. Interesting. Now, an intriguing thing I'd want to see is I mentioned before that they hand wave and kind of ignore the how does the invisible man see? How does this happen? Yeah. Something I'll note I've never watched before is I've never seen anybody fight invisibility with invisibility. I've never seen the fire with fire. Can invisible people see each other? Well, depends on the nature of the invisibility. Would would a version of the story where his where his old friend, the other person who studied under the same uh, professor, takes a version of it to fist fight his old his old uh, <laughs> colleague to the death in the final thing as a way to stop him? Be an intriguing twist. I wonder. Well, if it's pure <laughs> optical invisibility, I'd say no. Yeah, but but if it is dimension shifting invisibility, like in the Lord of the Rings. Thanks. Yeah. When when Frodo puts on the ring, the he and the Nazgul can see one another. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm requesting seeing an invisible fist fight, but I don't know what that <laughs> means I'm looking for. <laughs> I think I'm asking for an empty room and sound effects, but it would be cool. Could invisibility somehow work where your reflectivity is just shifted? That's what I'm wondering. Into the infrared or maybe the ultraviolet. Yeah. Such that that is what your retinas now respond to. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're seeing and everything like it's night vision. Right. That's the other thing. The invisible man is one of those abilities that has gotten worse because infrared is easier to use. <laughs> yes. And so it's like, like uh, how do we find the invisible man? One moment. Pulls out pulls out handheld thermometer waves it across the room that spot's warm ah you caught me yeah it really wouldn't be too hard yeah but i'm glad we saw this i'm glad i watched it again there were parts i liked there were parts that i thought oh come on let's let's move along absolutely and not that it's a very long movie it's very uh a very tight running time yeah this is a, this is a snappy little thing but yeah in the end there's kind of this this interesting version with that with this guy who loses himself or lets himself go being invisible. And I'd love to see more of this. So. And, uh, and universal was not done with stories about people who, who lose themselves because of a transformation. Ah, we and got we'll, one more. We will be back in a couple of weeks because it is not yet Halloween. Oh, so we hope you'll join us then for more spooky stories from the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.